Chapter Six of *The Pretty Lady* by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Six, The Albany. G. J. Hope. He was usually addressed as G. J. by his friends, and always referred to as G. J. by both friends and acquaintances. Woke up finally in the bedroom of his flat with the thought, "Today I shall see her." He inhabited one of the three flats at the extreme northern end of the Albany, Piccadilly, W1. The flat was strangely planned. Its shape as a whole was that of a cube. Imagine the cube to be divided perpendicularly into two very unequal parts. The larger part, occupying nearly two-thirds of the entire cubic space, was the drawing-room, a noble chamber, large and lofty. The smaller part was cut horizontally into two storeys, the lower story comprised a very small hall, a fair bathroom, the tiniest staircase in London, and G.J.'s very small bedroom. The upper story comprised a very small dining room, the kitchen, and servants' quarters. The door between the bedroom and the drawing room, left open in the night for ventilation, had been softly closed as usual during G.J.'s final sleep, and the bedroom was in absolute darkness, save for a faint grey gleam over the valance of the window curtains. G.J. could think. He wondered whether he was in love. He hoped he was in love, and the fact that the woman who attracted him was a courtesan did not disturb him in the least. He was nearing fifty years of age. He had casually known hundreds of courtesans in sundry capitals, a few of them very agreeable. Also a number of women calling themselves, sometimes correctly, actresses, all of whom, for various reasons which need not be given, had proved very unsatisfactory. But he had never loved, unless it might be mildly Concepcion, and Concepcion was now a war bride. He wanted to love. He had never felt about any woman, not even about Concepcion, as he felt about the woman seen for a few minutes at the Marigny Theatre, and then for five successive nights vainly searched for in all the chief music halls of Paris. A nice name, Christine. It suited her. He had given her up, never expected to catch sight of her again. But she had remained a steadfast memory, sad and charming. The encounter in the promenade in Leicester Square was such a piece of heavenly and incredible luck that it had, at the moment, positively made him giddy. The first visit to Christine's flat had beatified and stimulated him. Would the second? Anyhow, she was the most alluring woman, and yet apparently of dependable character he had ever met. No other consideration counted with him. There was a soft knock. The door was pushed, and wavy reflections of the drawing-room fire played on the corner of the bedroom ceiling. Mrs. Braiding came in. G.J. had known it was she by the caressing quality of the knock. Mrs. Braiding was his cook, and the wife of his man. It was not her place to come in, but occasionally, because something had happened to Braiding, she did come in. She drew the curtains apart, and the day of Vigo Street, pale, dirty, morose, feebly and perfunctorily took possession of the bedroom. Mrs. Brading, having drawn the curtains, returned to the door, and from the doorway said, "'Breakfast is practically ready, sir.' G.J. perceived that this was one of her brave, resigned mornings. Since August she had borne the entire weight of the war on her back, and sometimes the burden would overpower her, but never quite. G.J. switched on the light, arose from his bed, assumed his dressing-gown, and, gazing with accustomed pleasure round the bedroom, saw that it was perfect. 
He had furnished his flat in the Regency style of the first decade of the 19th century, as matured by George Smith, upholder extraordinary to His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales. The pavilion at Brighton had given the original idea to G.J., who saw in it the solution of the problem of combining the somewhat massive dignity suitable to a bachelor of middling age with the bright, unconquerable colours which the eternal twilight of London demands. His dome bed was yellow as to its upper works, with crimson valances above and yellow valances below. The yellow-lined crimson curtains, of course never closed, had green cords and tassels, and the counterpane was yellow. This bed was a modest sample of the careful and uncompromising reconstitution of a period which he had everywhere carried out in his abode. The drawing-room, with its moulded ceiling and huge recessed window, had presented an admirable field for connoisseurship. Here the clash of rich primary colours, the perpendiculars which began with bronze girls' heads and ended with bronze girls' feet or animals' claws, the vast flat surfaces of furniture, the stiff curves of wood and a drapery, the morbid rage for solidity which would employ a candelabrum wearing five hundred weight to hold a single wax candle, produced a real and imposing effect of style. It was a style debased, a style which was shedding the last graces of French empire in order soon to appeal to a Victoria determined to be utterly English and good. But it was a style. And G.J. had scamped no detail. Even the pictures were hung with thick, tasselled cords of the Regency. The drawing-room was a triumph. Do not conceive that G.J. had lost his head about furniture, and that his notion of paradise was an endless series of second-hand shops. He had an admirable balance, and he held that a man might make a faultless interior for himself, and yet not necessarily lose his balance. He resented being called a specialist in furniture. He regarded himself as an amateur of life, and, if a specialist in anything, as a specialist in friendships. Yet he was a solitary man, liking solitude without knowing that he liked it, and, in the midst of the perfections which he had created, he sometimes gloomily thought, What in the name of God am I doing on this earth? He went into the drawing-room, and there, by the fire and in front of a formidable blue chair whose arms developed into the grinning heads of bronze lions, stood the lacquered table consecrated to his breakfast tray, and his breakfast tray, with newspaper and correspondence, had been magically placed thereon as though by invisible hands. And on one arm of the easy chair lay the rug, which, because a dressing-gown does not button all the way down, he put over his knees while breakfasting in winter. Yes, he admitted with pleasure that he was well served. Before eating he opened the piano, a modern instrument concealed in an ingeniously confected Regency case, and played, with taste, a Bach prelude and fugue. His was not the standardised and habituated kind of musical culture which takes a Bach prelude and fugue every morning before breakfast, with or without a glass of lithia water or fizzy saline. He did, however, customarily begin the day at the piano, and on this particular morning he happened to play a Bach prelude and fugue and as he played, he congratulated himself on not having gone to seek Christine in the promenade on the previous night, as impatience had tempted him to do. Such a procedure would have been an error in worldliness, and bad from every point of view. He had wisely rejected the temptation. In the deep blue armchair, with the rug over his knees, and one hand on a lion's head, he glanced first at the opened times, 
because of the war. Among the few letters was one with the heading of the Rivalli Motorhorn Company Limited. G.J., like his father, had been a solicitor. When he was 25, his father, a widower, had died and left him a respectable fortune and a very good practice. He sold half the practice to an incoming partner and four years later he sold the other half of the practice to the same man. At 30, he was free and this result had been attained through his frank negative answer to the question, The law bores me. Is there any reason why I should let it continue to bore me? There was no reason. Instead of the law, he took up life. Of business preoccupations, naught remained but his investments. He possessed a gift for investing money. He had helped the man who first put the Rivalli motor horn on the market. He had had a mighty holding of shares in the Rivalli Syndicate Limited, which had so successfully promoted the Rivalli Motorhorn Company Limited, and in the latter, too, he had held many shares. The Rivalli Motorhorn Company had prospered and had gone into the manufacture of speedometers, illuminating outfits, and all manner of motor car accessories. On the outbreak of war, G.J. had given himself up for lost. This is the end, he had said, as a member of the sore-shaken investing public. He had felt sick under the region of his heart, in particular, he had feared for his Rivalli shares. No one would want to buy expensive motor horns in the midst of the greatest war that the world, etc., etc. Still, the Rivalli company, after sustaining the shock, had somehow continued to do a pretty good business. It had patriotically offered its plant and services to the War Office, and had been repulsed with contumely and ignominy. The War Office had most corsically intimated to the Rivalli Company that it had no use and never under any conceivable circumstances could have any use whatever for the Rivalli Company, and that the Rivalli Company was a forward and tedious jack apes unworthy even of an articulate rebuff. Now the autograph letter with the Rivalli note heading was written by the managing director, who represented G.J.'s interests on the board, and it stated that the War Office had been to the Rivalli Company and implored it to enlarge itself and given it vast orders at grand prices for all sorts of things that it had never made before. The profits of 1915 would be doubled, if not trebled, perhaps quadrupled. G.J. was relieved, uplifted, and he sniggered at his terrible forebodings of August and September. Ruin? He was actually going to make money out of the greatest war that the world... etc. etc. And why not? Somebody had to make money, and somebody had to pay for the war in income tax. For the first time, the incubus of the war seemed lighter upon G.J., and also he need feel no slightest concern about the financial aspect of any possible developments of the Christine adventure. He had a very clear and undeniable sensation of positive happiness. Chapter 7 For the Empire Mrs. Brading came into the drawing-room, and he wondered, paternally, why she was so fidgety and why her tranquillising mate had not appeared. To the careless observer she was a cheerful woman, but the temple of her brightness was reared over a dark and frightful crypt in which the demons of doubt, anxiety and despair year after year dragged at their chains, intimidating hope. Slender, small and neat, she passed her life in bravely fronting the shapes of disaster with an earnest, vivacious, upturned face. She was thirty-five, and her aspect recalled the pretty, respected lady's maid which she had been before Brading got her, and knocked some nonsense out of her, and turned her into a wife. 
G.J., still paternally, but firmly, took her up at once. I say, Mrs. Brading, what about this dish cover? He lifted the article, of which the copper was beginning to show through the Sheffield plating. Yes, sir, it does look rather impoverished, doesn't it? But I told Brading to use the new toast dish I bought last week but one. Did you, sir? I was very happy about the new one as soon as I saw it. But Brading never gave me your instructions in regard to it. She glanced at the cabinet in which the new toast dish reposed with other antique metalwork. Brading's been rather upset these last few days, sir. What about? This recruiting, sir. Of course, you're aware he's decided on it. I'm not aware of anything of the sort, said G.J. rather roughly, perhaps to hide his sudden emotion, perhaps to express his irritation at Mrs. Brading's strange habit of pretending that the most startling pieces of news were matters of common knowledge. Well, sir, of course you were out most of yesterday, and you died at the club. Brading attended at a recruiting office yesterday, sir. He stood three hours in the crowd outside because there was no room inside. And then he stood over two hours in a passage inside before his turn came, and nothing to eat all day or drink neither. And when his turn came and they asked him his age, he said, Thirty-six. And the person was very angry and said he hadn't any time to waste, and Brading had better go outside again and consider whether he hadn't made a mistake about his age. So Brading went outside and considered that his age was only thirty-three after all. But he couldn't get in again, not by any means. So he just came back here and I gave him a good tea. And he needed it, sir. But he saw me last night and he never said anything. Yes, sir, Mrs. Brading admitted with pain. I asked him if he had told you and he said he hadn't and that I must. Where is he now? He went off early, sir, so as to get a good place. I shouldn't be a bit surprised if he's in the army by this time. I know it's not the right way of going about things, and Brading's only excuse is it's for the Empire. When it's a question of the Empire, sir... At that instant, the white man's burden was Mrs. Brading's, and the glance of her serious face showed what the crushing strain of it was. I think he might have told me. Well, sir, I'm very sorry, very sorry, but you know what Brading is. G.J. felt that this was just what he did not know, or at any rate had not hitherto known. He was hurt by Brading's conduct. He had always treated Brading as a friend. They had daily discussed the progress of the war. On the previous night, Brading, in all the customary sedateness of black coat and faintly striped trousers, had behaved just as usual. It was astounding. G.J. began to incline towards the views of certain of his friends about the utter incomprehensibility of the servile classes, views which he had often annoyed them by traversing. Yes, it was astounding. All this martial imperialism seething in the depths of Brading, and G.J. never suspecting the ferment. Exceedingly difficult to conceive Brading as a soldier. He was the Albany valet, and Albany valets were Albany valets and naught else. Mrs. Brading continued. It's very inconsiderate to you, sir. That's a point that is appreciated by both Brading and I, but let us fervently hope it won't be for long, sir. The consensus of opinion seems to be we should be in Berlin in the spring, and in the meantime I think, she smiled an appeal, I can manage for you by myself, if you'll be so good as to let me. Oh, it's not that, said G.J. carelessly. I expect you can manage all right. Oh, cried she, I know how you feel about it, sir, and I'm very sorry. And at best it's bound to be highly inconvenient for a gentleman like yourself, sir. I said to Brady, 
You're taking advantage of Mr. Hope's good nature. That's what I said to Brady, and he couldn't deny it. However, sir, if you'll be so good as to let me try what I can do for myself. I tell you that'll be all right. He stopped her. Braiding, his mainstay, was irrevocably gone. He realised that, and it was a severe blow. He must accept it. As for Mrs Braiding managing, she would manage in a kind of way, but the risks to Regency furniture in China would be grave. She did not understand Regency furniture in China as Braiding did. No woman could. Braiding has been as much a find as the dome bed or, or the unique bookcase which bore the names of Homer and Virgil in bronze characters on its outer wings. Also, G.J. had a hundred little ways about neckties and about trouser stretching, which he, G.J., would have to teach Mrs. Braiding. Still, the war. When she was gone, he stood up and brushed the crumbs from his dressing ground and emitted a short, harsh laugh. He was laughing at himself. Regency furniture and china, neckties, trouser stretching. In the next room was a youngish woman whose minstrel boy to the war had gone, gone, that he might be only in the next street. And had she said a word about her feelings as a wife? Not a word. But dozens of words about the inconvenience to the godlike employer. She had apologised to him because Braiding had departed to save the empire without first asking his permission. It was not merely astounding, it flabbergasted. He had always felt that there was something fundamentally wrong in the social fabric, and he had long had a preoccupation to the effect that it was his business, his, to take a share in finding out what was wrong and discovering and applying a cure. This preoccupation had worried him, scarcely perceptibly, like the delicate oncoming of neuralgia. There must be something wrong when a member of one class would behave to a member of another class as Mrs. Brading behaved to him, without protest from him. Mrs. Brading, he called out. Yes, sir, she almost ran back into the drawing room. When shall you be seeing your husband? At least he would remind her that she had a husband. I haven't an idea, sir. Well, when you do, tell him that I want to speak to him, and you could tell him I should pay you half his wages in addition to your own. Her gratitude filled him with secret fury. He said to himself, Futile these grand gestures about wages. End of chapter 7